Welcome to Cognizations, a podcast where we interview cognitive scientists about their work and how it applies to our everyday lives. Cognitive science is the interdisciplinary study of the mind, which brings together cognitive psychology, the neurosciences, linguistics, philosophy, modeling, and more. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello and welcome to Cognitations. With today's hosts, I'm Jay. And I'm Thanaya. Our daily experiences, for example, in thinking, acting, talking to people, etc., give us the idea that our mind is a singular entity, a unified inner space, or soul perhaps, that perceives and acts on the complex world around us. On the other hand, we tend to speak in ways that point to a relative segmentation of the mind. One often hears that some individuals are particularly talented at solving mathematical equations, that women are more empathic than men, that some children have a very rich imagination and hence are destined for a creative line of work. These ideas, although pernicious in some cases, point to an intuition that has historically been very important for the scientific study of the mind. That is, our mental capacities are somewhat independent from one another, and that some of them come to us naturally to varying degrees. Observing patients with localized brain injuries and the development of scientific and technological methods facilitating the study of specific capacities in relative isolation from others have allowed us to finesse this intuition, taking it out of the realm of scattered speculations and into the scientific one. Which mental capacities can be isolated and where are they localized in the brain? How can we investigate these locations? What are the consequences of this line of research for how we conceive of the mind more generally? Does it open up venues for understanding atypical cognition? Today's guest is the person to answer all of these questions, or at least some of them. She is Nancy Ganresho. She is the Walter A. Rosenblatt Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience in the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences and a founding member of the McGowan Institute. She received her BS and PhD from MIT. After her PhD, she held a MacArthur Fellowship in Peace and International Security for two years. She joined the MIT faculty in 1997 and prior to that served on the faculty at UCLA and Harvard University. Her lab has contributed to the identification and characterization of a number of regions in the human brain that conduct very specific cognitive functions. She's the recipient of numerous awards in the Academy, the most recent being the Jean-Nico Prize awarded annually in Paris to leading empirically oriented philosopher of mind or philosophically oriented cognitive scientist. So welcome, Nancy, and thank you for accepting our invitation to be here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so yeah, just to get started for listeners, could you just describe how you got interested in brains and cognitive science more generally? Well, um, these things always have complicated histories, and I think my reconstruction of it isn't probably exactly correct, but I can't imagine not being interested in brains and minds. I actually think that almost everyone is interested in brains and minds, whether they uh, decide to study it scientifically or not. I mean, who hasn't wondered what a thought is, and whether mm. they think in language, and whether they could think if they didn't have language, and etc cetera, etc cetera. what is dreaming what does it have to do with thinking mm. i think the the wonderful thing about minds is that we have them and we can watch them in action and that makes us wonder how they work and so i think pretty much everybody wonders how they work and so in a way you 
asking these questions in behalf of everyone. Well, I certainly hope that the results of the research are of interest to a broad range of people, not just the few academics who read my papers and whose papers I read and who we have our little scientific tips with in the field. That's all well and good, but uh, I think science is most valuable and fun if um, everyone finds it cool. Hmm. Um, so you call yourself a cognitive neuroscientist, and is there a difference between this and just a neuroscientist? Yeah, I think there is a difference. And the difference is that I look at the brain because that's where the mind lives, not because it's a particularly cool organ. It is, but I'm less interested in its physicality and physical structure um, than in how that physical structure uh, enables the mind. And so I think if you look at the brain with an eye to understanding the mind, that's what makes you a cognitive neuroscientist. Hmm. And strikingly, you say that you're not interested in the physicality of it, but uh, people have also called you a badass scientist. And we're referring to some BuzzFeed article uh, from a few years ago, I think. Um, you know, talk about how you shaved your head to show, uh, to you know, demonstrate where certain areas were localized. Um, so, do you have anything to say about this? And specifically, you know. Uh, what can showing the location of these areas say about you know how how the mind works? Well, I think it makes it it just gives us a very concrete hook. Mm. Actually, although there's a lot of emphasis in the actual location of different mental functions, I think that's the least interesting aspect of cognitive mm. neuroscience. I don't really care if a mental region is you know, in my forehead or in the back of the head, it really makes no difference. What to me is interesting is not where these mental functions are, but which ones have specialized mm -hmm. machinery. So you need to know where they are to study them. If you want to yeah. go ask a region new questions, you need to go find it first. And so you need to know where it is. And so as a practical matter, it's relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you know a lot more neuroanatomy than I do, you can probably also use its location to mm -hmm. learn various things. Um, but for the most part, uh, I'm interested in the uh, characterization of the mental functions more than the physical location where they mm. live in the brain. So, so on that note, let's take a step into some of the work that you have done in the past 20 years. So just to get us started, why is it important to think about the structure of the mind and where the functions might be or which these which of these functions might be specialized in the first place i'm not sure it's important mm -hmm. i think it's fascinating okay um so so far i don't think any of the work that i've done sadly is directly relevant to any practical issue that people face maybe the occasional neurosurgeon will pay attention to some of the regions we've mapped out to affect the surgical route they they choose in some surgery, I suspect that's pretty rare. And for the most mm -hmm. part, I think it is not of practical significance yet. I think the reason to study the, the, the mind and the brain um, is the same reason that we study cosmology, you know, the origins of the universe. Who doesn't mm -hmm. want to know how the universe began, right? And yet the practical implications, we're not going to go start up some other ones in our backyard, presumably, <laughs> right? It's just cool. Right, and I think that um, I think people in our field do ourselves a disservice when we focus overly on the 
medical applications. That is, I would be thrilled if someday there was a medical mm. application of some of my work. But honestly, mm. that's not what I'm in it for. I'm in it because I want to know who we are. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so you say that people uh, you know, seem fascinated by this, you know, as just because, you know, by virtue of being humans in a way. And uh, this seems to be confirmed by the fact that throughout history, there have been um, other ways of, you know, characterizing the architecture of the mind. Uh, can you uh, very quickly mention these or walk us through uh, how, what some of these conceptions are? Uh, and then... Sure. So, as you mentioned, there's lots of different methods. Probably some of the earliest ones are studies of patients with brain damage, um, because it's very striking to find a person who is, you know, very much a person, often highly intelligent, and has this one thing or this suite of things that they can't do. It's mm. just astonishing to even think about. What is it like to be that person who's perfectly smart and then can't do these particular things? It's riveting. Um, it's the most riveting thing that I ever talk about in my undergrad lectures. When the students are getting bored, I bring up a <laughs> neuropsych patient because it's sure to mm. capture everyone's imagination. Like, what, what would it be like to be that person, right? So that's some of the early stuff. And, uh, you know, the Greeks and probably before were noticing this. Mm. And so I think that's some of the earliest um, work in our field. Uh, but then um, more recently, I think behavioral research did, did some of the most important work for uh, understanding, you know, how the mind works and what its basic components were. And, for example, some of the early work from Spearman, who basically, you know, tested school kids on a whole suite of different tasks and just asked exactly as you, as you raised a moment ago, if you're good at one thing, are you necessarily good at other things, mm -hmm. right? And what Spearman found is that in general, to a first approximation, kids who were good at one thing were good at most other things, right? And so that was a derivation of the idea of G, or general intelligence, um, which makes people, at least in the United States, uncomfortable, the whole concept. But it's actually an empirical result, right? That there is, that these things are correlated. But the other thing that Spearman discovered is that there were also all these S factors, as well as the G factors. And the S factors were all the other specific abilities that weren't mm. so perfectly correlated or weren't fully accounted for by the generic ability. Mm. And he was already onto some of them, like music and math and so forth. And so I think you see even in the very, very low-tech method, behavioral mm. methods of the early 1900s, they were already dis discovering both domain general uh, cognitive abilities and domain specific ones. Hmm. Can you uh, just uh, quickly define uh, domain specificity in generality. Yeah. yeah, so the idea of domain specificity is that there are some mental functions and or brain regions that conduct very specialized uh, mental processes like face recognition or language understanding or uh, uh, perceiving music or thinking about what another person is thinking. And so the idea that we have these specialized mechanisms is the idea of domain specificity. And mental functions that are much more general purpose are referred to as domain general. So this is very continuous with what cognitive scientists would call the modularity of the mind. And so have people conceived of the modularity of the mind in similar ways or do cognitive scientists disagree on this notion? 
Oh, well, cognitive scientists disagree on everything. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, um, yes, famously on modularity of mind. I think, uh, I think when Fodor wrote that book, Modularity of Mind, he was probably intentionally um, setting out a rather extreme position with a whole set of properties that he thought went along with this idea of specialized aspects of the mind or components of the mind, that they were innate, that they processed mostly input information or output information like perception or motor control mm. plus language, um, but not higher level cognition. The further idea that information flowed in very particular ways, only some information would get into each module mm. uh, and various other uh, phenomena that he captured all together under his rubric of uh, the idea of a module. And you mentioned higher level cognition. Is that the same as domain general cognition? Well, it's an empirical question whether it is. And so I think okay. Fodor's thesis was that higher level cognition would not be modular in the way that perception and motor control and, uh, and language are, um, and that it would be all one general purpose mush. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what we're already discovering with uh, modern cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience is that at least some aspects of high-level cognition um, fit many of the criteria of modularity by having uh, particular um, neural structures, by having distinctive developmental profiles, by being highly specialized for just that thing and not everything else. Maybe the clearest case is theory of mind. First really characterized behaviorally um, in, in developmental studies showing that the uh, development of this ability is very systematically arises uh, at age four and not before. Can you characterize the, the ability please? Yes, so in um, the classic theory of mind task um, asks a kid to distinguish between another person's belief and reality. And so to do that correctly, the, the way to distinguish them is to impute a false belief to that person. And if a little kid can understand that another person can have a belief that's not true, mm. uh, that requires them to represent a belief separate from reality. And that ability seems not to kick in until surprisingly late, around age four. It also seems to be an ability that's relatively selectively impaired in people with autism. So high-functioning people with autism can certainly pass those tasks, but generally later than typical kids. And so for those and other reasons, it seemed like a distinctive mental ability based on, based on behavioral data. And then Rebecca Sachs came along and decided to do brain imaging studies to see if she could find a brain basis for that ability. Uh, and to my continuing astonishment, even 20 years later, uh, in fact, she found that a region in the junction of the temporal and parietal lobes in the right hemisphere is remarkably specialized for just that very specific mm. function of thinking about what other people are thinking. Mm. Yeah. So we've been talking about the brain and uh, you know capacities being localized in areas of the brain, etc. Um, but maybe we should take a step back because maybe many people don't know how certain capacities can be localized in the brain and they don't know how the brain works because after all the brain is just a, a soggy hunk of cells uh, when you look at it from the outside. So I guess it's a kind of challenging question. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's maybe not, it might not be an easy uh, task, but 
if you were to explain how the brain works to an alien, let's say, an alien scientist uh, whose cognition works radically differently, how would you go about explaining how the brain works to them? Well, I guess there's lots of levels of understanding how the brain works. So at a very basic mechanistic level, the brain is composed of a whole bunch of neurons. Um, and each of those neurons you can think of as a little microprocessor that gets inputs from thousands of other neurons, sends output uh, to other neurons, and in between does a quasi-algebraic uh, operation on those inputs to decide how to take all those inputs into account and decide what output to send to other neurons. And you put a few billion of those together and a big complicated mess and you train it up over evolution and development uh, and you get apparently a pretty intelligent being. <laughs> <laughs> but if you could also, because most of our listeners might not be conversant with neuroscience, so if you could just sort of give a very quick primer of what a neuron is or no or, or just what are the different structures uh, areas or regions that we sort of know in the brain at a very broad level well okay so um the uh conscious thinking part of the brain mostly lives in the cortex which is the outer surface it's the size and thickness of a large pizza but to take that large pizza and fit it into your head you need to crumple it up that's why it's all folded up so that's where the cell bodies are of those neurons that do the computations. And underneath the cortex, you have all the wires. That's the white matter, the connections between one region of the cortex and another. And below that, you have the various subcortical structures um, that do a whole suite of things from basic um, you know, body, body um, management, managing hunger and heart rate and stuff like that, as well as a, a set of um, nuclei, little processors that send uh, input and receive, uh, send input to and receive input from areas widespread across the cortex, modulating things like uh, detecting reward and informing the brain about reward, or um, detecting surprise and informing the rest of the brain about surprise. My work focuses more on the cortex because it's more associated with the conscious operations and when i think about trying to understand minds um that's not only the parts we're conscious of but it's kind of first and foremost the parts we're conscious of that feel like the ones that you know are most crying out for explanation yeah no i think the metaphor of a pizza works really well like <laughs> next time i see a neuroscience paper i'll think of pizzas <laughs> um well, yeah, since we were initially discussing about the different methods that can arbitrate between different views of the mind or mm -hmm. different conceptions of what modularity could look like, could you maybe give our listeners a quick overview of the empirical methods that yeah, you use so to I, arbitrate between? Yeah, so I started with the, uh, you know, patients with brain damage uh, way back as one of the earliest, probably the earliest. And that method is particularly important because it tells us about the causal role of a particular brain region. Uh, other methods are lovely where you measure neural activity while people do stuff that can be enormously informative, but it never tells you that that activity is necessary for that mental operation. Whereas if somebody has a lesion in some part of their brain and can no longer do a task, well, that part of the brain was necessary for the task. Mm -hmm. So in science, we're particularly interested in the uh, causal role of the things that we study and so studies with of patients with brain damage play an absolutely central role in the field for that reason. So I started with neuropsychology, study of patients with brain damage. 
I then mentioned behavioral work, which I still think is the basic method in our field. Everything else is based on behavioral work and still many of the deepest insights about cognition come from behavioral work. Um, but more recently, there's a, a vast array of neuroscience-based methods um, where you can measure electrical potentials at the scalp, just glue wires on your head, and measure teeny tiny little voltages that result from the summed activity of neurons underneath. That method is wonderful because it can give you very precise time information, like has some aspect of perceptual information registered a 20th of a second after an image flashes on your retina or, or a um, you know, or a tenth of a second or a fifth of a second, you can tell exactly that kind of thing from these little uh, electrical potentials measured on the outside of the head. Uh, but that method has very poor spatial resolution. So it's very hard to tell where those signals are coming from. Mm -hmm. The analogy that's been used often is it's like sticking a um, microphone on the top of a football stadium at the top of the roof, <laughs> you can tell when a goal has been scored, but you can't really tell where or what exactly happened, right? Um, so uh, methods that have better spatial information um, include functional MRI. It gives you the best spatial um, information about neural activity in human brains that you can obtain non-invasively. That means without opening up the head. Uh, and so it uses changes in blood flow that result from neural activity. Hmm. So just as if you get up and run around, you need to send more blood to your legs to supply that, um, the, you know, to supply the muscles. If a bunch of neurons in your brain fire, more blood needs to be delivered to that part of your brain. And so that's the signal we use with functional MRI. Hmm. And then um, arguably the most powerful method in all of human cognitive neuroscience um, are the rare abilities that we get to measure neural activity directly uh, from the human brain in patients who have uh, electrodes in their heads as part of pre-surgical mapping, right? So um, the most common uh, version of this is people who have um, drug-resistant epilepsy. And if you have many seizures a day, you can't live a normal life. If that epilepsy does not respond well to drugs, which it does in most people, but not everyone, uh, sometimes your best option is neurosurgery. And then very often the neurosurgeons will stick electrodes into brains of subjects to try to figure out where the seizures are coming from and to chart their surgical route. Mm. And that if those patients are willing, so they often hang out in the hospital for about a week with these electrodes in their head, um, and if they are willing to look at our pictures and listen to our sounds and do our tasks mm. while we record activity from those electrodes, those are the most precious data we can get. And so they're rare and cherished and extremely valuable because they have both spatial resolution and mm. temporal resolution. And do these patients usually agree to do your task? Like in your experience? Uh, well, I'm not the one asking for them to participate. Okay. Um, but many of them do. Um, okay. It, you know, it. They're basically hanging out in the hospital for a week, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, wait, basically waiting to have seizures. There's nothing else for them to do. You know, hopefully they have visitors and books to read and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But they're basically stuck in the hospital for a week with electrodes in their head. Um, you know, our tasks are not, you know, fantastic. Every one of them, but they're not yeah. terrible. It's like <laughs> let's look at these pictures, listen to these sounds 
try the simple task. They're not terrible. And mm-hmm. so many patients agree to do it. And for that, we're enormously grateful. Which confirms the hypothesis that everyone cares about the yes. brain-mind <laughs> yes. brain work. But yes, although a very important thing we need to do with those patients is make sure they understand yeah. that this is not going to help them personally. So we don't mm-hmm. want to obtain their permission based on a misunderstanding. And so we try to be extremely clear that this is for scientific understanding of the brain. It may someday help somebody. It's not going to help you. We're very sorry about that. Mm. Uh, But it will help the uh, advancement of science. Well, and as to the difference of another population from which we gather data, which is non-human animals. Mm -hmm. And many of the conclusions and theories and hypotheses formulated in neuroscience uh, originate in uh, the study of animal brains, rats, monkeys, etc. Why are these methods so widespread? And then maybe what are some of the shortcomings of using um, non-human animals? Yeah, well, those methods are widespread because they're vastly more powerful than anything we can do in humans. The closest thing we get to humans is the um, electrodes in the brains of uh, of, uh, epilepsy patients that I just mentioned. But even there, um, we don't get to choose where those electrodes go. That's those are chosen by clinical reason for clinical reasons, and rightly so. Um, and so, wherever the neurosurgeons place the electrodes, well, that's what we get to study, right? So, mm-hmm. you can't use it as a um, as a scientific method that you can control. What you can do is try to be opportunistic with this fantastic opportunity and learn what you can from it. But with animal research, um, you can basically do anything um, that doesn't cause suffering to the animals. Um, And that means an increasing array of spectacular methods that, you know, we can, they just make me very wistful because we have none of these in humans, right? So (laughs) you can not only, you know, record from individual neurons pretty much anywhere in the brain, you can now record from thousands of neurons at once in the same animal in multiple different brain regions. Mm -hmm. You can see neural codes change over time and exchange information across different parts of the brain. You can selectively disrupt specific neural populations, specific cell types. You can disrupt them for this five milliseconds, not that five milliseconds. You have spectacular control with electrical stimulation, with optogenetic methods that can just, with a flash of light, turn on or off a a specifically identified batch of neurons. Um, The list goes on and on. The methods are spectacular, and those methods are just shooting through the roof. Every time I turn around, there's another amazing method Hmm. that works only in animals, not in humans. (laughs) It's it's hard not to get a little cranky about it, but that's where we are. Hmm. And why why would one get cranky? Um, This question is... uh, how um, how much we are to generalize from this data from animals to the cognitive right. functioning of humans. Right. Well, obviously, we can learn a lot, mm-hmm. um, and especially in basic neural mechanisms, um, which are likely shared, excuse me, between animals uh, and humans, we can learn a lot. So things like basic initial visual processing, In fact, multiple stages of visual processing are likely extremely similar in monkeys and humans. I mean, monkeys, like humans, are extremely visual animals with a large percent of their cortex allocated to processing visual information, just like humans. Mm. And in fact, you can find very systematic mappings between particular visual areas uh, in monkey brains and in human brains. And that's one reason why visual neuroscience in humans 
is a pretty advanced field is that when it got going uh, with functional MRI and other methods, we had a major advantage to be able to build on the prior discoveries of animal research, um, many of which are the same in humans. So in the early days of functional MRI, the first things people did was to see whether they could find things that we, they suspected would be true in humans that were already well known mm. in monkeys, like retinotopic mapping, showing that in primary visual cortex, where visual information first arrives at the cortex coming up from the eyes, you have a map of visual space with next door bits of cortex responding to next door bits of your visual field. Mm -hmm. And this had been known for many decades in monkeys and other animals. And so some of the first functional MRI experiments mapped out multiple different retinotopic regions in visual cortex in humans. And because those uh, and other related studies were based so heavily on prior work from monkeys, all of that well-developed scientific methods from those uh, from the prior monkey work were applied directly uh, mm. to the study of vision. And so people who uh, have worked a lot on vision, like me, who are a little biased in favor of our <laughs> corner of the field, uh, think that our field is more advanced because we could build upon those prior results from monkeys. Whereas a lot of the early work, for example, on the frontal lobe in humans was like the Wild West and any old method went and there was a lot of silly stuff that went on, I think in part because there was less to build on from the prior mm. monkey work. And so you could say any old thing. Whereas if you just kind of said in visual cortex, well, I found an activation and it looks like this and I'm going to publish a paper in Nature, like that wouldn't fly. People would say, okay, you know, which visual area is that? Mm. You know, all these visual areas in mm. monkeys, you have to say, you have to use this and that and the other method to try to relate it to this prior mm. literature. So I think there was a, a kind of fundamental seriousness in the early stages of vision research with functional MRI that was uh, took a while to catch on in some <laughs> other parts of uh, human cognitive neuroscience. Mm. But at the same time, I think that's great for establishing the methods. But at the same time, and it pains me to say this, I think there's less reason to study those things in humans because they can be studied with much greater scientific mm. precision in animals. Mm. And so I think the really important work on humans, the most important work now and going forward, will be on things that might be different in humans. Mm. And I think you see that already in auditory cortex. So I think humans and monkeys use vision very similarly. So even high level vision is very similar between humans and monkeys. But we use hearing very differently than monkeys. You can see that behaviorally, trying to train a monkey to do an auditory task is an extremely difficult thing. They don't get it in the way that they get it for visual tasks or in the way that any human gets it if you try to train a human on an auditory task. Hearing is just a different beast in monkeys than it is in humans. Are they just not interested or...? I don't know what happens. I just know from friends who many people have tried this that it's really hard to train them to do an even very basic auditory task. And if you think about how monkeys use hearing, you know, they do communicate with each other acoustically yeah. and they do detect sounds in the environment. They localize sounds in the environment. So they do some similar things. But, you know, most of what we do with hearing is what we're doing right now. We're talking mm -hmm. to each other or listening to music mm -hmm. or doing other things that really have no, you know, strong analogs in animals. Yeah. Like human language is just so far from the three, four, five, whatever it is, uh, you know, <laughs> words or, or, or calls that, uh, that animals have, mm. that it's really just an entirely different thing. So I think that the, the strongest justification in human research is to study those things 
that animals don't have or don't have in mm. anything like the way that humans do. And that mm. would be high-level hearing, language, understanding other people's thoughts, and all of that complicated stuff that goes on in the frontal lobe, so whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> but yeah, now that we have some of the methods established and we were talking about visual neuroscience, could you tell us more about this a fundamental part of your work which sort of focused on this discovery of a brain region dedicated towards detecting faces mm -hmm. and how that bears upon the modularity of the mind debate. Mm -hmm. Well, we first started working on faces way, way back um, because I didn't have any grant money and I needed a result. I needed something that was bound to work because I only got a few subjects. If I didn't get a result in a few subjects, I would be kicked out. Uh, and there was so much prior reason to think that there might be a specialized brain region for face recognition mm. that it seemed a good bet. I didn't actually have a prior interest in face recognition. I was being extremely <laughs> pragmatic. I was much more interested in the general case of vision, not the special case, right? If it's mm. a special case, then it's idiosyncratic. If it's the general case, that's the more fundamental thing. Uh, but I needed a result, and there was so much reason to think there would be a specialized face processor from studies of patients who had selectively lost that ability to a whole suite of behavioral phenomena that we just said, okay, let's find that guy first. Mm. Um, and so we just did the extremely simple-minded thing of scanning subjects while they look at faces and scanning while they, them while they look at objects and asking if there's any part of the brain that responds more when people look at faces than objects. And in pretty much every subject, we saw the same little blob in the right fusiform gyrus, just mm. behind, underneath, inside uh, of the right ear on the bottom surface of the brain. Um, and then we studied it systematically and established that it's really very strongly selectively responsive to faces. And while we do know this, that this is a signature of, let's say, typical cognition, do we know how this sort of deviates in the cases that you mentioned about neuropsychology patients who have like these lesions in certain regions, regions of the brain. So does this affect other aspects of cognition that might be related to face processing? Well, the thing about modularity is that to a striking degree, these are separate little mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Of course, they interact, mm -hmm. they inform each other, information is spread between them, but to a striking degree, they seem to function quite separately. And so what that means is you can have people who lose their face recognition ability, just absolutely cannot recognize faces at all, and absolutely have no deficit whatsoever in any other mm -hmm. aspect of their perception and cognition. Mm -hmm. That's the striking thing about modularity of mind and brain, is you can lose one of those very specific little things and nothing else. That's why it's just mm -hmm. so striking. And you see that both in the case of uh, acquired prosopagnosia, people who have damage to that part of their brain, and you also see it in people who have developmental prosopagnosia. Mm -hmm. This is people who have no known brain damage, but never at any point in their life have they ever been able to recognize faces. Mm -hmm. And those people have perfectly normal IQs, and in many cases are absolutely normal at all other aspects of vision. They just can't recognize faces. Mm -hmm. And how does this contrast with individuals who have uh, autism spectrum disorders? Because it's been observed that there's some uh, problems with facial processing uh, in these individuals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we can see that they're quite separate. So you can look at this, for example, 
uh, Brad Duchesne at Dartmouth did a beautiful study where he asked, is a face recognition deficit sufficient to produce subsequent social deficits? Mm -hmm. You might imagine that's the root cause. Maybe that's the root cause in autism. And he showed very clearly that it's not. And you can see that because people with developmental prosopagnosia who are very, very bad at face recognition are absolutely normal at social tasks that do not require them to distinguish one person from another by their face. Mm -hmm. And so that says that, okay, it's very uh, frustrating, it's very difficult to go through life not being able to recognize people. It doesn't necessarily produce any social cognitive impairments as a consequence. So whatever's going on in autism, I think is not fundamentally a face recognition Mm -hmm. deficit. There is some evidence, although all of it disputed, the autism literature is very uh, contradictory and quite a mess. There's some evidence of face recognition deficits in autism, um, but I think that's probably a side effect rather than a root cause. Mm. So there's some different, you know, function that's working differently and that takes yes. information from maybe uh, or that it's like high, higher up in the hierarchy or something. That would be my guess, yeah, but it's yeah. very, very difficult to figure out what that is. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so because we have this data from uh, people with specific deficits uh, and we have some idea of, um, of the root causes of um, other other you know um, forms of um, atypical cognition um, do you think that knowing uh, where certain um, new some a certain functions are, um, are realized can help us possibly devise some kind of treatment date on the line I know you said at the start that <laughs> you thought there was no immediate kind of application but do you think it's a good place for uh, um, clinicians and you know people who try and come up with new forms of therapy, for example, to look uh, for inspiration, maybe or uh, look. I think any of us who are trying to understand a difficult scientific thing should look and look at any data we can get our hands on for for mm-hmm. inspiration because you just never know where the next idea is going to come from. Um, but as I said, I you know I don't. I don't think, at least the stuff from my lab, I don't think is going to be directly, you know, helpful for most clinical disorders. My first guess would have been autism as a place to look. Mm-hmm. I tried looking into that for a few years, and I got so it was so difficult. I I sort of gave up um, because, well, one uh, results don't replicate across labs. The first mm-hmm. thing I did was fail to replicate one after another of the major findings in the field. And I don't think the prior studies were stupid or wrong. I think that the it's an extremely heterogeneous uh, disorder, and it's probably not one thing hmm. that makes it really difficult. Um, I think lots of other, uh, I think, I don't know, I'm really no expert on this, but my guess is that there's a whole suite of, of other disorders like, uh, you know, schizophrenia and Alzheimer's that one would guess have much more biological causes. You know, something goes wrong with the biological basis of the brain. And so, yeah, understanding that functional organization may be useful eventually, but it doesn't feel like the most relevant thing. Then other disorders, uh, you know, like anxiety and depression, um, these things surely relate to brain organization, but probably more likely a lot of the subcortical things Mm -hmm. um, that regulate mood and affect. Um, so, 
you know, I'm no expert on those areas to put it mildly, but um, certainly people can and are uh, learning from, for example, the reward system, which is a whole set of subcortical regions, um, and coming up with, you know, sometimes computational models of reward circuitry to try to understand things like, you know, addiction and depression Mm. um, and anxiety. And so I think those are very, very promising directions, just not ones I'm working on. (laughs) To our listeners, what is it to come up with a computational model for something? Well, I think it means lots of different things to to different people. Mm. And I don't come up with computational models. I'm an experimentalist, but my friends do. And so whenever they tell me about their computational models, I always ask them, okay, can we test that? Uh, and when possible, I think it's great to try to test that because for in, in many ways, you know, a computational model in principle is a full account of what is actually going on in the mind at the level of an algorithm, right? Mm. And so to step back, there's lots of ways to understand the brain. So David Marr famously laid out multiple levels of explanation. You can have a physical explanation, like this neuron fires and activates that neuron, like billiard balls striking each other, very physical and mechanistic. Um, You can have an algorithm level explanation, like which um, piece of information is going to feed into which process and affect a conclusion. If you think about, for example, uh, how you make a decision on what, uh, what uh, um, object to move next in a chess game, um, which piece to move next in a chess game, you have to take certain information into account and uh, weigh the evidence and decide what to do. If you're trying to understand a chess playing program, you want to understand the strategy that it's using. Mm. You don't want to hear about the semiconductors that that chess program, <laughs> it's like not helpful. Mm. You want to know how many steps ahead does it consider, right? Mm. What kinds of steps does it consider? And that's the algorithm level. Mm. And that is a very meaningful level at which to understand uh, anything from a computer program to a mental process. Okay, so you have hardware, you have algorithm, uh, and then you have theory, um, which is uh, an effort, uh, according to Mar, to understand um, how, well, what information is available to the system to, um, to conduct some computation um, and how it might use that information to reach its conclusion, right? So Marr thought a lot about how, um, he he gave this beautiful quote about how the nature of the algorithms that are running in perception that enable us to know what we're looking at or hearing um, are based in large part on the structure of that problem, by which he meant what information is available to the sensory Mm -hmm. system and what could any processor, in principle, extract from that information, whether it's a machine or a brain? And his speculation was that much about how the mind extracts information from perceptual information will be just dictated by the nature of the problem. And that was a very interesting speculation when he made it back in 1982. And it has been very strikingly um, supported, I think, Mm. by the recent results showing that artificial neural networks that are optimized with a bunch of fancy methods in computer science um, end up arriving at very similar conclusions or similar strategies to brains solving the same problems. Hmm. So the, the, the problems are probably uh, the same as 
and probably you know some very basic problems you know uh, visual pattern recognition things like that are probably similar for every human in a sense um, but how can we be sure that the the brain regions underlying um, the solving of those problems is the same across you know seven billion humans on the planet well we can't be sure it's an empirical question <laughs> and the first thing you do is you run your experiment on a bunch of people and you look and see mm-hmm. and so all of the regions we've been studying in my lab one of the one of the reasons that i take them seriously as things in the brain to study mm-hmm. kind of candidate natural kinds right is that they're in the same damn place in everybody more or less mm-hmm. with a little bit of wiggle room mm-hmm. So that, to me, seems like a thing worth studying, right? Um, But there's absolutely no guarantee that every mental process you test is going to be like that. In fact, many of them clearly won't, right? Mm. And so to me, what's interesting is that there are certain special ones that are very systematic and similar across people in their neural instantiation. So I I find this speculation by Mars, which has been largely empirically successful, to be a very interesting way to formulate a research program. And you could say that, yes, there are fundamental theoretical, informational theoretical problems that have remained constant in our environments. But then when you look around our current day environments today, there are obviously new types of problems that confront us, like we invented math or we invented reading, for instance. And I was just wondering what's the relationship between that and what we know about the theories about the structure of the mind that your lab has looked into, for instance. So is your question, uh, what do we know about more recent cognitive inventions? Yeah, exactly. That don't have an evolutionary precedent? Yeah, so I think that's very interesting. and. Um, and again, it's to some extent an empirical question. Hmm. Um, the most relevant data I know about this is the the work of Stan DeHane and um, um, and Amalric, who have looked at professional mathematicians. Hmm. They've scanned professional mathematicians solving math problems in their specialized domain of expertise. You know, the topologist is given topological problems and the geometer is given geometric problems, like really hard ones in their field. Well, I look at these problems, I can't answer any of them. (laughs) Um, And they find that the brain regions engaged by those professional mathematicians are very similar, doing math problems, Mm. are very similar to the brain regions that are engaged in any of us doing the basic math problems the rest of us can solve. Mm. And that suggests that even those very advanced modern uh, versions of of expertise in a domain may piggyback on on older systems that exist also actually in monkeys. Like the, the number work is very interesting because similar brain regions as Stan and Andreas Nieder and others have shown, similar brain regions are engaged in representing the number of things mm-hmm. um, in uh, in humans and monkeys. Mm. On that way, and I was also wondering because one other big change in our environments has been the amount of screens and digital devices we have around us. I mean, there are more than the number of people on this planet. And so I was wondering like, and screens are such a visual thing is this sort of affecting what we know about structures of vision in in the mind and brain i don't know 
I doubt it's going to affect the brain much because mm. I think the screens have been adapted to exploit the brain structures we already have. Mm. Uh, the reason we like looking at screens, the reason that's just such a rich source of information is that the whole back third of the head <laughs> is processing that information. Mm. We have all this machinery that's just hungry for the information on the screen, mm. you know, or the information that's hitting your retina, whether you look out the window or look at a screen. It's, mm. it's all going to go to the same places and be processed by the same machinery. We're just extremely visual organisms. That's why we look at screens all the time. But then I guess the concern in the broader public, I, I think it's true what you said that yes, we are visual organisms and these devices are precisely attractive to us because they are piggybacking mm -hmm. on these ancient mechanisms. But the concern in the public seems to be around the developmental course in that, that oh, like when we were kids, we didn't have screens and look, we turned out to be great or not great. Um, and since you've also worked on development of these brain localizations, um, do you think it might have an effect on the developmental course of those localizations? Yeah, I don't think it's going to have any effect much on the brain regions that I've studied. Mm. But I think many people are rightly worried when their kids uh, spend so many hours a day on their screens that they're not running around outside and <laughs> doing other things. Uh, but I, but that's not something I have expertise on. Uh, mm. But I do think kids should be running around and doing other things <laughs> besides looking at screens, <laughs> but not based on cognitive neuroscience, just based sure. more on common sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and so yeah, this, this actually prompts the further question, or the more general question of uh, when in the lifespan do these uh, specialized neural regions become specialized? And then how does this shift throughout the lifespan, if at all? So recent studies by Rebecca Sachs and Heather Kosakowski have shown that face, place, and body selective regions are all there in the brain in more or less the same place by six months of age. Mm. And that's very early. So that's a very important constraint on however development works. Um, it doesn't answer definitively the question of whether something is innate or whether some of it is learned, because even six months is a bunch of time to learn stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does push way back uh, the amount of time available to wire them up. So that's an important constraint. Hmm. So how is this a constraint, more precisely? What does this say about, you know, if, it, if it's not innate, then what does this say about what is innate, at least? Well, I don't think it says anything about what's innate or not. It just oh. says that whatever mechanism you propose, it has to be one that can get you that selectivity within six months. Yes. That's <laughs> so that's all, that's all we have right there from those data, yeah. right? And so that leaves open a range of different kinds of accounts. Um, and I still think the, you know, the original one for the face system proposed way back, you know, decades ago by Mark Johnson and others, that you build in some very, very rudimentary system that's going to look for a face-like pattern uh, to get an infant to look at that pattern. And then once infants look a lot at that pattern, then the experience will wire up the rest of the cortex. That is not the only story, right? So my colleague Rebecca Sachs um, uh, believes that it at least is important, if not more important, that what infants are looking for is not a particular visual pattern, but a social partner even very, very early on in development. And so there's lots of ways to detect a social partner. One is contingent interactions. 
um, and stuff like that. And so she thinks that what gets the face system going, that the face system de develops absolutely in tandem with and not before uh, a whole system for social engagement. And in fact, in some recent analyses, she and Heather Koskowski have shown that um, frontal regions that respond to faces that are involved in, in adults in kind of higher level social cognitive operations, that those regions are present as early as the visual face selective regions, as you would expect if that whole system was developing together, rather than be, being built up from the perceptual system forward up to higher level systems. So mm. I think that's an interesting counter argument mm. to the kind of perception first, bottom up development story. Yeah. So in theory, if for some reason, I don't know what that reason would be, we all like we, we took a child or we started communicating with all children in such a way that instead of putting our face up to them and speaking to them, we put something else of similar complexity in front of them. Uh, I know, let's say, uh, I know, like a, a painting, I, I don't know, it could be anything of similar complexity. Would the, the, the face area become specialized for that type of thing? Yeah, great question. So Marge Livingstone has made that argument um, with the case of baby monkeys. So she's scanned baby monkeys longitudinally. Uh, and of course, adult monkeys have face selective brain regions, just like humans do. And so she asked first when those brain regions develop in monkeys. And I forget the exact age, but I think it's around 180 days. And the usual comparison of monkeys to humans is multiply by four. So that comes out to a few years, two years or something like that. Um, so that's step one. It's later than we see it in human infants, but whatever. But then the more interesting thing she did was to raise those baby monkeys without ever letting them see faces. And she did that by having all of the caregivers of those monkeys wear welding masks over their faces mm. whenever they were around the monkeys. The monkeys got plenty of cuddling and other social engagement. They heard other monkeys. They smelled other monkeys. They got cuddled and by their human caregivers uh, and I believe by their moms at night in the dark. Uh, but when the lights were on, um, they were not with other monkeys and they were only with humans who had welding masks. So they never saw faces at any point in their lives. And then on the very first time that Marge and her colleagues scanned these monkeys, uh, the claim is that they did not have face patches, ah. hmm. um, but that they developed them later mm. after they had more experience. Now that's a really important study. It somewhat conflicts, at least in its conclusion, not in its data, with our study of congenitally blind people, mm -hmm. where we found that congenitally blind people who had never seen faces developed face-selective responses to faces by touch in the mm -hmm. same region everyone else has them for vision. Wow. And so it's hard to reconcile those two bits of data. Um, I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I think a key part of it is the different experience that the monkeys and the humans have at first exposure, right? So um, when those monkeys are first presented with face images, the face-deprived monkeys, they have no idea what that pattern is. It's just a visual pattern. It's meaningless to those monkeys. Whereas when the uh, congenitally blind adults feel our 3D faces, mm -hmm. they know exactly what that is, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's bound to be important to mm -hmm. um, to why there, there's that differential response. Okay. Um, 
so um, just to come back again to this uh, idea that this research might not have any real-world implications or not directly or not for therapy or for surgery or whatnot. But you've been talking about how you think that um, everyone is interested in some way in these questions. Um, do you think that because we're so interested in these questions and that maybe they're integral to how you view ourselves and each other, you know, as, as a as individuals and whatnot, with agency, do you think that scientific progress in understanding uh, more about these topics can and or should shift the way we see each other and ourselves? Do you think it has some kind of consequence for, you know, our self-conception? I'm not sure. I think the brain regions that I've studied so far don't don't give a radically different view of our conception of ourselves, but with a little bit of poetic license extending those results, I think it makes more plausible the idea that people need not be all that um, consistent and unified inside uh, because we are multitudes of different things. Mm. Um, And so uh, when we behave in ways that we know we shouldn't uh, or say something that conflicts with something else we know or do any of the other logically bizarre things that humans are, uh, you know, that humans do all the time, Mm -hmm. we shouldn't be that surprised because there's different bits in there doing different computations Mm -hmm. and they share information to some degree, but not fully. And so it's not shocking when we have inconsistencies in our heads. Thinking about consequences of this work, maybe a more direct consequence of this work would be on designing artificial systems that we embed in our surroundings, like facial recognition systems and security checks. So does the research that has been done here on the architecture of the mind have any implication on how we should design these artificial systems per se? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's absolutely clear that the recent boom in AI is Mm. proving extremely useful to neuroscience. Mm. It's much more debated whether any of the results from neuroscience Mm. are helping the guys in AI. Some of them will say that uh, ideas from neuroscience have been important in AI. Um, Many of them think it, I think the more common view is that, you know, they're they're just doing their thing. They don't care what (laughs) we're doing. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. There's still very fundamental things that AI is famously bad at mm. that humans are much better at. Could you give some quick examples? Uh, common sense. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, common sense is just basic knowledge of, you know, how to behave in the physical world. Like, you know, AI systems are great at the very particular problems, at face recognition or object recognition or speech recognition or these or predicting the next word in text these very very specific things um but humans are more generally good at just solving any old problem on the fly Mm. and all you need to do is look at a you know think about a household robot like wouldn't it be great to have a household robot that could um you know prepare a meal and provide basic health care to an elderly person Mm -hmm. like that would be great and that does not exist. Mm. 
There's no robot that is worth a damn at those tasks. Those are pretty simple. Mm. And robots are just absolutely awful at those tasks, (laughs) right? And so that means that there's something that goes on in our heads that all the people in AI haven't cracked yet. Um, And I've been trying to work a bit with roboticists to try to, you know, figure out where the stumbling blocks are and whether there might be insights from human cognition and human neuroscience that might be useful. And honestly, I have no idea if there will be contributions. But one interesting thing is that robotics people um, routinely say the big problem in robotics is perception. Um, And so, you know, why can't the robot, um, you know, make a sandwich? Well, it can't see what's what, right? And so Mm. even though the convolutional neural networks are really good at uh, telling you if that image contains a dog or a toaster or a sandwich or whatever it is. Uh, if it actually comes to, you know, reaching out and picking up the bread and smearing butter on it or whatever you're going to do to make your sandwich, um, that's where the robots fail. And so I think that requires a more 3D structured representation and understanding of the physics of the world you're acting on to know how to act on it. Mm. All of that stuff might be part of this broader notion of common sense. Um, that the robots don't yet have. Mm. And so um, we don't have great computational models of those systems. Like if the robots could do it, we'd use those as computational models and test them in humans. But for the most part, the robots can't do that stuff very well. So who knows? Maybe we will be able to give them ideas from humans. Mm. Seems to suggest that common sense is part of it is kind of a matter of integrating a bunch of different things in ways that are appropriate. I think that's uh, kind of what you mean by common sense here. <laughs> or Yeah, it's a bunch of things. Yeah, one, integrating different kinds of information, but also just basic, a basic grasp of the physical world that you're acting yeah. in to know how to like do basic things, right, mm. which requires the kind of intuitive physics, uh, understanding of objects and their relationships and materials and what will happen if I take these simple actions on the world? What's going to happen next? That kind of stuff. Mm. Oh. Um, and keeping on this topic of artificial minds, and you just said that uh, that there's a problem. There's like perceptual problems for uh, neural networks and things like that. Um, how does the the way um, artificial minds do face recognition? differ from the way uh, the ways in which humans do it. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been looking at that with um, me and Katerina Dobbs. Uh, I've been comparing uh, human face recognition behaviorally to uh, artificial neural networks that have been optimized for face recognition. And we find striking similarities in the behavior of those networks. So we find that basically all of the standard behavioral phenomena that you see in humans Um, the the characteristic uh, similarities that they will rate between different faces, which faces look similar to humans and which faces look different. Um, And the fact that we are much worse at recognizing upside down faces, that we are worse at recognizing faces of races we're less familiar with. All of those things that have been described in the human behavioral literature for many decades, Every one of those things arises spontaneously in an artificial neural network that's trained on face Mm -hmm. recognition. Mm -hmm. You don't build them in to model it. You just optimize it for face recognition. It gets really good at face recognition. And as a byproduct, it shows every one of those properties. Mm -hmm. 
It is, if instead you take a network and you optimize it for object classification, you don't show it faces, but you show it dogs and toasters and trees and apples and so forth, and you train it to recognize those things, it gets great at that. And then you can feed it faces and have it do those same tasks. It doesn't show any of the phenomena that we see in the human face system. And all of that suggests to me that all of those behavioral phenomena are the byproduct of the brain optimizing, or that part of the brain being mm. optimized for face recognition. Mm. So it's something about faces themselves. That, mm. yeah. okay. the, well, well, okay, yeah. Um, it's the fact that we've been optimized on those stimuli. Yeah. Now, mm. we could ask, related to your earlier question, which of those phenomena would happen on a different stimulus? Hmm. So you could hmm. ask, is the face inversion effect, do you need to have a face stimulus or just need hmm. expertise with any class of stimulus? Yeah. Could you imagine a banana inversion effect? Well, example? in fact, we showed, we showed a car inversion effect oh. in an artificial neural network. If it's optimized for discrimination of upright cars, of course, it shows an inversion effect for inverted cars. In fact, we also showed an inverted inversion effect. We trained a neural network on upside-down faces, mm -hmm. and then it's much worse at recognizing upright faces. What that tells you is that, um, that the inversion effect is a result of optimization for an upright version, mm. uh, for discrimination of exemplars of an upright version of something. So you can get inversion effects for non-faces if you're optimized uh, for another domain of non-face stimuli in networks probably also in brains, although all the people have looked at that for a long time, the behavioral data in humans are weaker, probably because no human has as much experience in mm. uh, recognizing anything else other than faces. Like you, you were mentioning some of the comparisons that you and your colleagues have been doing between artificial neural networks and face recognition in humans. Are you aware of similar work that people have done for other cognitive Functions. Yeah, my favorite work in this domain uh, is the work of my colleague Josh McDermott, who's been looking at auditory phenomena. Um, both the case of auditory localization, you know, we're very good at it. If you shut your eyes and I walked around the room, you would know exactly where I was talking from. Mm. Uh, we're excellent at that. Uh, and there are many decades of psychophysical tests of exactly how good are people at auditory localization and how does their accuracy depend on the frequency composition of the sounds or other sounds presented at the same time or every imaginable variation. People have tested those. And so um, what he showed, he first showed that if you train a neural network to do auditory localization, you give it input recorded from a head model, from inside microphones, inside the ears of a head model, to all kinds of different sounds. Um, it gets very good at it, and it shows all of the behavioral phenomena of human auditory localization. But then, the really cool part of the study is they said, how many of those phenomena result from the problems posed by um, sound localization in, in, in natural environments? So then, they recorded new sounds recorded inside the ears of a head model uh, in an environment with no echoes. Hmm. And then they trained a network on those stimuli, and that network showed none of the phenomena oh, wow. of human auditory localization. So that tells you that all of those psychophysical phenomena that have been characterized over the decades as just, you know, like phenomena to be collected with no explanation, now we know why they happen. 
They are a consequence of optimization for sound localization in natural environments with echoes. Mm. They mm. don't arise if you're optimized oh. for environments without echoes. Wow. Yeah, that's a spectacular study. But this is part of a, of a growing trend that I think is extremely exciting where people are asking, uh, where just to caricature, a lot of our field, both cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience, has been a little bit like you know the natural historians of the 1800s. You know, they go out in the woods and they say, oh, I see some of these and I see some of those and I see some of these and they make beautiful drawings and rich descriptions and they develop this inventory of phenomena, mm. but they don't ask why. And then Darwin comes along and he's got a theory. He's got a theory of why. This animal has that thing to solve this problem and this animal has that thing to solve that problem. Well, I think we're undergoing a similar thing right now, where instead of just having, oh, here are the things we see in the brain, here are some phenomena in psychophysics and cognitive psychology, great, we discovered some facts, good for us. Mm -hmm. now, we have, now we can test theories of why we have those things mm -hmm. by optimizing artificial neural networks to do different tasks and asking which of those task optimizations produce the things we observe in humans. Mm -hmm. And if we see those human-like phenomena, only under some task optimizations, not others, that starts to tell us why we have them in the brain. That is, what problem they are solving for us. Well, and, if that's, and I think that's a fundamental change in the field. Yeah. But if that's your answer to the why question, don't you think it's kind of minimalist or light in a sense, that it's just the problems themselves? Do you think there's more to say? Do you think this is efficient as a? An uh, I think there's multiple things to say. I think it's a. Hmm. I think it's. I think when that ends up being the answer, I think that's really profound and enormously hmm. useful. Hmm. Um, and it's a first pass answer to a why question. A why in the sense of what is what is this a byproduct of? What optimization is this a byproduct of? That's a very fundamental kind of answer to a why question. But then one can still ask, as you always can, well, why is that the result of optimization for this thing? So Katharina and I wrote a review article on this where we called that the why of the why. Right? <laughs> there's the first why, and then there's the why of the why. And there are times when you can actually look at your networks and say more about the why of the why. But that's really the bleeding edge. There's very little of that mm. as of yet. Hmm. The moral of the story is, in a way, that we're using these sophisticated machines that we created ourselves to get more insight into the human mind, yep. which to me is quite fascinating in a way that we couldn't do it before. <laughs> so on that note, yeah. uh, should we conclude? Yeah, let's wrap up. Um, so just before wrapping up, in wrapping up, uh, we usually ask our guests if there's something they would like to come back to, something they would like to, you know, explain more of or clarify um, in what's been said up until now. Something you think we missed or... I don't know. I think we did a decent job. <laughs> and, and here we are in Paris, and I have only this afternoon left. So yes. I'd rather go play in Paris, if you don't mind. Great, that's, that's a great way to end it. <laughs> and before we conclude for good, we were just wondering if you had any sort of media recommendation or book recommendations on the sort of things that we discussed today for listeners, if they're interested and want to dwell deeper into some of the topics. Yeah, uh, let's see, off the top of my head, I really like Grace Lindsay's book, Models of Mind. She talks about the history way up to the current status 
of uh, artificial neural networks and their background. It's beautifully written and just fantastically well explained. I think it's a lovely book. Um, just because I'm bad at coming up with stuff on the fly, I will embarrassingly say my entire undergrad course is available on MIT OpenCourseWare. That is a great. You can watch all the lectures. Um, there's lots of other good stuff out there, but I'm I didn't prepare an answer to this, so I don't <laughs> I don't have it ready on the on the tip of my tongue. So this has been Cognitations. You've been uh, chatting with Nancy Canwisher. Thank you so much for taking your time to do this. My pleasure. Thank you. On the next episode of Cognitations, we'll chat with Dr. Corali Chevalier about social cognition, autism, and public policy. If you have ever wondered about how insights from cognitive science can shape public policy, this episode is not to be missed.